This week on Geek Explained, part three of Geektober dives into the world of video games with a special look at one of my favorite horror games of all time, Dead Space. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is part three of Geektober. This is our latest series where every week in the month of October, I'll be tackling the horror, Halloween, spooky season in a different form of media. Our first week was comics with American Vampire. Last week, we dove into animation with Over the Garden Wall. And this week, we've got video games featuring my favorite horror horror game I've ever played. I know, I know, it's a big statement, but it's my favorite horror game of all time, and that is Dead Space. That's right, this game has been on my mind for a very long time, and since it is the spooky season, I figured it was the perfect time to cover what I think is perfect sci-fi horror storytelling. We also have our latest wildcard weekly review, reviewing the pilot episode of another horror series, and of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. We're going to kick things off with miscellaneous news, specifically Avengers game news, which feels like it gets worse and worse every week. It's so unfortunate. Um, basically, uh, Square Enix, Crystal Dynamics, basically... Uh, announced this past week that the upgrade to uh, PlayStation 5 slash Xbox Series X slash Xbox Series S uh, is going to be delayed. Initially, they promised that it would be ready to go on launch day, but they have delayed it to 2021 sometime in quarter one, I'm assuming sometime in the spring. Uh, they basically said that they wanted to tweak things, make sure it's as good an experience for players as possible, which considering the experience it is now, um, I get it. I get it, they want to take some time, but again, like, this is stuff that they kind of should have had already ready, but, um, you know, it is what it is. My most disappointing part of this, though, is they also announced that Kate Bishop, our very first DLC, which was supposed to be coming at the end of this month, in fact, it was supposed to be, I think, this week, or next week, something like that, has been delayed out of October. Now, this could mean, hey, it's, you know, November 1st, or whatever, but this isn't a good luck. It's unfortunate, because I know a lot of people have been jonesing for new content, new story content, uh, new character content, and that's what this initial Hawkeye idlc was supposed to provide but 
It looks like they are taking the uh, the cautious route. They want to make sure everything is up to snuff, which I totally understand. But again, it is super disappointing, and it's like it's rough. I'm I'm trying my best to play it as often as possible, but I'm having you know I'm having trouble sticking with it because it's a lot of grinding. It's a lot of you know kind of mindless missions, especially when you're playing by yourself. It's not really. Um, it's not a lot of fun. So um, I'm hoping, you know, give it a couple months, give it some time, and maybe it will start to pick up with all the DLC that's supposed to be coming out. But we'll see. Uh, jumping on over to comics news. The big comics news of this week was that we are getting 5G light, I guess. Um, DC announced that DC Future State will be coming to their uh, company line-wide in January and February of 2021, so just a couple months away. And it looks like basically what they're going to be doing is taking all the plans that they had for 5G and compressing them into two months, which is just exactly what you would expect DC to do. <laughs> if we're talking about stuff like Convergence and Futures M, this feels very similar to that, kind of like a holding pattern while they get all their stuff ready for what they're going to be doing for 2021. Um, I'm okay with it. There's a lot of creative teams that I'm really excited about, a lot of characters that I'm really excited about to kind of step into the limelight here. And even though I'm not going to be going through all 22 books that were announced uh, in this here uh, news segment, I will be doing a full breakdown of the uh, DC Future State with good buddy and uh, friend of the podcast, Malcolm Joshua Russell Nelson. Uh, we're going to be going through, doing every uh, book, every character, kind of breaking it down, doing a uh, Future State guidebook, if you will. So stay tuned for that. That'll be coming up uh, in the next couple weeks. Uh, jumping over to TV news, speaking of DC Comics, Titans Season 3 has begun filming. Cool. <laughs> they announced that uh, production is finally underway for the third season of Titans. Again, just to reiterate from uh, past episodes, this season is supposed to uh, bring in Red Hood, Barbara Gordon Batgirl, as well as the Scarecrow. We'll see what happens. Uh, I have made it very clear on this podcast that I am not a fan of Titans, as it has been so far. So hopefully, you know, season three will turn me around. Fingers crossed. We'll see. Uh, moving on over to film news. Lots of film news this week. First off, uh, we have a new casting announcement for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I'm going to butcher this name, so forgive me for this mispronunciation. Uh, Sochitl... Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm just gonna power through it. Uh, Sochitl Gomez has joined Doctor Strange 2. I'm not super familiar with her work. She's a younger actress. Um, so this, in my, you know... My Neck of the Woods is going to be her first big film. Uh, a lot of people are saying that she might be America Chavez, which I could absolutely see with the multiverse uh, being as big as it is for this uh, for this phase, it seems like. More on that later. But I would also put forward that she might be Zelma Stanton. Uh, Zelma Stanton is a character who was introduced in the Jason Aaron and Chris Bacalo, uh Doctor Strange run, one of my personal favorites, if not my favorite. And uh, I think she she has grown into quite a quite an interesting and important character in that in the magical neck of the woods when it comes to Marvel Comics. So I could see her being Zelma Stanton, but 
I think America Chavez is equal, uh, equally possible. I think, you know, 50-50 on either of that, especially since there have been rumors for a while now that uh, Young Avengers is on the cards at some point. Uh, we do know that Kate Bishop is going to be joining the t- is going to be joining the MCU with the Hawkeye D- Disney Plus series. So we'll see. I'm interested to see who she plays. I would be on board with either character, but of course, since uh, Doctor Strange: The Multiverse of Madness is so far away, they're going to keep that pretty close to the vest, which I understand. Moving over the. Uh, uh, over the pond, over to DC Comics slash Milestone Comics, uh, it was announced this past week that Michael B. Jordan is going to be executive producing a Static Shock film. I'm really excited about this. Static Shock has been criminally underutilized in uh, mainstream comics for a very long time now, and with the rebirth of Milestone in 2021, I see good things on the horizon for this. Um, Static Shock is a character who I was really keyed in to growing up I loved the TV show and going back and actually picking up some of his comics when I got a little bit older and a little bit more into my comics fandom I have a deep-seated love for the character that I think is um, needs to be sated just as much as like a Spider-Man Captain America what have you Um, I'm really excited about this especially because we are getting someone who is a little bit more high profile like a Michael B. Jordan uh, putting kind of his weight behind it both um, on the producing side as well as I'm sure on the um, mainstream-esque side I'm looking forward to this this should be really cool Um, I'm hoping that they do a good job with this because Static Shock definitely deserves to have another great adaptation alongside that uh, that cartoon moving on over to a trailer that we got this week Monster Hunter that's right the Monster Hunter film is still happening we got the very first trailer for the film and oh my god does it feel like a late 90s to early 2000s film and not just because Mila Jovovich is in the title is in the lead role um Though I think that has a lot to do with it. Basically, this is your classic, you know, we're afraid to put our money behind the concept uh, film. Where they take, you know, this team of military personnel and they happen to wander into this incredible experience. Or, you know, these... These creatures from another world are brought into the real world. You know, it's this... We've seen it before. I think most recently what comes to mind is uh, Dark Tower, and that film did not do well. I wasn't a fan of it, um, which sucks because I'm a big fan of the Dark Tower series. And I have an appreciation for Monster Hunter. I've never been like a huge Monster Hunter guy, but I can appreciate it, absolutely. And this film doesn't feel like Monster Hunter. I know that sounds weird considering that it does have these incredible monsters and you have a guy running around with a giant sword that is much too unwieldy to actually be put to use in any kind of proficient manner. But... I don't know. Again, this just kind of feels like a film that's about 20 years too late, uh, much like Venom was. But um, we'll see. We'll see what happens with this. I don't have high hopes for it, but I mean, it's Monster Hunter. And if you're a Monster Hunter fan, this is probably going to be right up your alley. We'll see. And then finally in films news, I think the big news of the week, and it's really more rumor and speculation than news, so take this with a grain of salt. Uh, There has been rumor speculating around with all the uh, Spider-Man 3 news of Jamie Foxx coming back, possibly more multiverse shenanigans. 
Hopkins that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield might be returning to this film to make it a Spider-Verse film. I have talked about this before. I believe I talked about this on last week's episode. Um, why can't we just have a solo Spider-Man film? Why is this, why do they have to make this Spider-Verse? Like, I get that they're trying to really push the multiverse aspect of it. Um, I saw on uh, Twitter that some people are now speculating, hopefully, fingers crossed, this is just kind of like a tease? Like an after credits, like, hey, multiverse, Spider-Verse. But it just, it, it feels too outlandish, and it feels like too much. They have an incredibly... Uh, I think an incredibly strong prompt for this film. Spider-Man is, his identity is out to the world. Now everyone's going to be coming after him. You don't need to overcomplicate it. And I feel like they're overcomplicating it. But someone did say something on Twitter. I believe it was Mauricio with Brown Table on YouTube. Um who might have put out the idea that uh, a lot of rumors have been swirling around that Craven might be the main villain for this, though with Jamie Foxx's Electro showing up and him possibly being the main villain, I don't know what's going to go on with that. But if the idea is that Craven the Hunter is a multiversal Spidey hunter, that he goes from universe to universe hunting the Spider-Men of every universe, I could get on board with that. Um, they would have to go a long way, and this film would have to be blown up to much larger than it should be, much larger than the street-level stuff that we got in, like, Homecoming. And, to, no, not at all, in <laughs> Far From Home. But um, that is something that I think would be interesting and something that hasn't been done before. So um, I'm looking forward to this. I, You know how much I love the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man films, how much I love Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. I would love more of him in the suit, treated well and treated with respect. Um, but we'll just have to see. I'm not especially hopeful, but you know I'm a sucker for multiverse, you know I'm a sucker for comic book stuff, you know I'm a sucker for like these sci-fi-esque concepts like a multiverse, um, traveling between and all that stuff. So that is going to do it for this week's news. And speaking of sci-fi concepts, we're going to roll right on into the main course of this episode, the entree, if you will, which is part three of Geektober, our special deep dive into the world of Dead Space. So, cards on the table, growing up, I was never really a horror guy. Like, I could appreciate the horror genre, um, especially in, like, movies, TV shows, but when it came to gaming, I was never really into the horror genre when it came to playing video games. I was never a Resident Evil or a Silent Hill kid growing up. Um, I just... Maybe it was because, like, when I was a kid, I got spooked really easily. Sometimes I still do, depending on, you know, the subject matter. But 
I really was not a huge fan of horror video games. Uh, the closest I ever got growing up was probably Bioshock. I think that was like mid-2000s. Um, but I don't even know if you would really consider Bioshock a horror game. It was definitely, you know, a science fiction, first-person action game, something like that. Um, but I was never really a fan of like the horror or the survival horror genre. So you can imagine my surprise in the summer of 2009 when uh, a lot of things were going on in my life. But um, a friend recommended to me that we try out this game called Dead Space that had just come out uh, pretty late the year previously. And I really liked the uh, the box art. It looked like when he booted it up, like, oh, this is a cool sci-fi game. And I've always been a fan of sci-fi. So it's like, okay, this sounds interesting. And as the game got going, you know, you're heading down into this kind of derelict-looking ship. You've got all the sci-fi tropes. You've got a crew, the stern but fair uh, commander. You're this character with a very, like, sci-fi-looking... Uh, armor outfit when all of a sudden um about halfway through the opening cutscene, my friend is like hey do you do you mind if we just like turn the lights off while playing this i think it would be really cool for um ambiance or for like the tone of the game i'm like okay sure whatever um when all of a sudden these giant creatures who are freaking terrifying come jumping out at the screen and i though in the past would have been absolutely horrified and run out of the room, I was entranced. I was hooked. I was just in awe of what I was seeing here. It freaked me out so bad. <laughs> but I remember sitting there and going like, am I into this? Am I like excited to go further into this like little shop of horrors that is this game like what's going on here and that was my introduction to dead space as part three of geektober we're going to be diving into my very first horror game a game that is very near and dear to my heart a series that is very near and dear to my heart and that is the dead space series uh specifically we're going to be talking about dead space one here i may talk about the other dead space games in uh future episodes but for this specific specific episode I wanted to talk about the first game because I think it's a perfect um, blend of sci-fi horror uh, gaming I think it's really really great and it's a game that I didn't know I was going to fall in love with um, this was a game that on paper I shouldn't have enjoyed uh, for all the reasons that I explained at the beginning of the segment but I really really loved it and even though you know, the nights of the summer of 2009 was spent jumping and shouting um, in fear and shock and surprise. Uh, it was one of my favorite experiences just spending the summer playing that game with all the lights off um, at night and just really getting hooked on this incredible story. So before we get into the game itself, I want to talk a little bit about how this game was made, the development of the game itself, because this is kind of a uh, little engine that could situation. Uh, this really all starts in the mind of a man named Glenn Schofield, or Schofield, however you want to pronounce it. Um, this guy was working at EA Redwood Shores and was 
Um, I don't know if he was like the project manager per se, but he was part of the production team on the System Shock games. Uh, The first two games were, as far as I can tell, uh, also very uh, stylized horror games. And as they were getting ready to begin development for System Shock 3, everything changed for Glenn Schofield, uh, the horror genre really in-gaming, when Resident Evil 4 hit the shelves. Now, Resident Evil 4 is, um, I would say, probably one of the best survival horror games of all time. Uh, We can have that discussion. Um, Matt Draper on YouTube did an incredible video on that. Go check that out. Uh, Full retrospective on that game and why it was so successful. But this really sent... This game, as just a product, really sent shockwaves throughout the gaming industry. Uh, It influenced, I would say, if not all a lot of the survival horror games that we would see following its release and this this game had a specifically uh, important influence on Glenn Schofield he wanted to put forth something that was just as good as Resident Evil but he wanted to do it with his own IP so he came to EA he basically said hey I want to essentially make Resident Evil in space and that is a direct quote um And so they gave him the time. They're like, okay, we're interested in the concept, so figure out what you want to do with this. Uh, Schofield has always been a fan of science fiction, and he wanted to blend that with the uh, horror that you would find in a typical Resident Evil game. And so he set out with his team to create something that they could hang their hat on, and instead of making just another System Shock sequel, they wanted to make something original. And there we got... Dead Space. Uh, In October of 2008, Dead Space was basically unleashed upon the world worldwide, and the game itself was something of a marvel at the time. Um, 2008 was, from what I remember, a pretty good gaming year, a pretty good year just in uh, geek culture. And so having this little-known game release around that same time uh, was pretty exciting and kind of flew under the radar initially. That's why, again, like, this game released in October 2008, and I didn't even hear about it until the next summer. But this game has, I think, one of the strongest premises of any game that I've ever played. Just the world-building that's involved, the lore. You know I'm a lore hunter. I love... Uh, any type of media that has a really well uh, developed lore system Um, and it just the opening minutes of this game really hook you and really bring you in so let's talk about it let's talk about that initial premise so basically dead space takes place in the year 20 let me see here let me i want to get the exact year 2508 so five 500 years from now i don't know why quick math like that was so hard for me um basically the world as we know it has mostly run out of resources and almost suffered near extinction for human life uh due to these uh research shortages so to counteract that this company basically created these things called planet crackers and what they do is that these ships go out to other planets and 
they basically go to these barren planets and they harvest resources by like cracking off pieces of that planet to then use as their resources and you know burn down and they continue this uh, cycle as they go from planet to planet. Um, the oldest planet tracker is a ship called the USG Ishimura. Now that's important because this is the main setting of the game. The Ishimura was the first planet cracker, is the oldest planet cracker. It is the one that everyone um, kind of knows in this universe when you think of the idea of a planet cracker. Um, and on a, from all official records, on a routine planet cracking to the uh, planet Aegis. Or, a or Aegis, however you want to pronounce it. I, I'm going to say Aegis. Uh, Aegis 7, there was an incident that happened. No one knows what happened. The uh, feed from the Ishimura just went offline. And so the nearby ship, uh, Kellyan, I believe it's still USG Kellyan, but I'm just going to say the Kellyan, um, is sent to figure out what's going on. And on the USG Kellyan are uh, a whole band of different uh, characters, but the main three that you should pay attention to are um, the captain, uh, basically chief security officer Zach Hammond, uh, computer technician Kendra Daniels, and engineer... Isaac Clark. Now, as this ship is heading towards the Ishimura, Isaac Clark is watching a holotape from his uh, his girlfriend, Nicole. Basically, the last kind of uh, transmission that they had with each other, and uh, he's basically, he is personally invested in finding out what happened to the Ishimura because his girlfriend, Nicole, was on the Ishimura during this uh, planet cracking mission and as they make their way to the Ishimura they find it completely shut off it is just derelict it's barren there's obviously been a lot of damage to it and it's just hanging out in the orbit of Aegis 7 so they along with a couple of uh, security officers head down into the Ishimura but because of a docking malfunction they end up having to crash land the Kellyan into the Ishimura uh, which from what they can tell, breaks some kind of uh, quarantine alert on the ship. They don't know what's going on. No one is there to greet them. All the lights are off. Nobody's home, or so they think. So as they are trying to figure out what is um, going on inside of the uh, first little area that they make their way into, they are attacked by these hideous creatures that are just you know they've got different like claws and like tentacles and like all these just disgusting um Cronenberg looking creatures wipe out most of the crew with the exception of Kendra Hammond and Isaac and they are initially separated but as um uh Isaac is separated from his crew, he is tasked with not only getting the Ishimura back online, but reconvening with Kendra, with Hammond, and trying to find out what happened to Nicole while trying to survive this hellish ship that they have been stranded onto. And that's the opening minutes of this game. Um, it just, it's so... It's so sci-fi, and I absolutely love everything about it. It's this um, 
very uh, in your face, like it takes its time to really let you know what's going on, giving you like little breadcrumbs here and there in the opening minutes. And then all of a sudden it just hits you in the face with these creatures that will stop at nothing to kill you, eat your face and turn you into one of them. Um, I will say from here on out, there will be some mild spoilers. I am going to be talking about some things here. I, I'm not going to go, you know, beat by beat, but there will certainly be more spoilers than um, than your typical spoiler-free review or retrospective or whatever. Um, so just be aware of that if you haven't played the game yet, which, I mean, it's a 12-year-old game by now, but some people have never played it. So if you don't know uh, anything about this game and you kind of want to go into it blind feel free, go play it, come back, and we'll discuss. But the biggest thing um, that the Dead Space game, the Dead Space series, really gifted into uh, survival horror, sci-fi horror, are the creatures that we spoke of, which are called necromorphs. Now, necromorphs are really um, just absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Um, necromorphs are essentially this, uh, these creatures that are, uh, influenced by something called the Red Marker. Now, the Red Marker is this man-made, uh, artifact to resemble an artif a religious artifact that was found on Earth. Um, as we come to find out in the, uh, in the audio logs in the game, as well as if you watched the, uh, animated film, I don't remember what it's called, um, the Church of Unitology, I'll give you a second to, uh, take that in and think about what that sounds like, um, worships these red markers. And so the Ishimura was not actually there on Aegis 7 to be part of a routine planet crack, but was being used in an illegal mining operation to get the red marker from Aegis 7 onto the Ishimura. And due to this, the, um, the red marker basically, uh, instills chaos and paranoia and madness uh, affecting the crew and turning them into these hideous, grotesque creatures. Now, these creatures come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, basically, if you've ever played a Resident Evil game, any, you know, the amount of variety that comes with those creatures, whether it's just regular shambling zombies or the dogs or the, like, small children or, like, the facehugger-esque creatures are all present here with a sci-fi twist. And what makes the uh, necromorphs I think really interesting is something that I hadn't seen before in a game and I really haven't seen utilized to this effect since and that is that uh, you would think with it having distinct Resident Evil uh, influences that to kill the necromorphs would be your generic you know zombie killing methods shooting them in the head chopping off their head making sure that their head is disconnected from their body in some way shape or form but not so with the necromorphs after getting uh separated from the rest of the crew isaac comes upon a blood scrawled message that states cut off their limbs and that keys you in immediately when you're playing this game on what you have to do to uh, disable and defeat these necromorphs. You have to cut off their limbs. Isaac Clarke uses this, um, this plasma gun, this plasma cutter that is 
generally used for engineering jobs, but he uses it to just mwah, chef's kiss uh, accuracy to cut off the limbs of the necromorphs. Um, the way that you disable them is by using this tool to cut off their limbs, thereby essentially um, disabling them and not allowing their uh, body to continue coming after you. Uh, one of the most exciting bits of the game when I've when I first played it was assuming that it would be a classic Resident Evil style um, uh, method to kill these things. So I cut off, you know, I blew off its head and then it just became frenzied and started just attacking every which direction because without a head, it doesn't have anything to focus on. Um, so they get even more terrifying. But the necromorphs are this creature that you know, has a lot of uh, influences from, like I said, Resident Evil, but also stuff like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, where it is essentially shapeless, but every shape will be, you know, how grotesque a creature will be, will be entirely dependent on A, how the, um, on the person, and B, on how that person was turned. You could see uh, some people just were, you know, cut off at the waist, and so they have these grotesque-like things coming out of their, uh, being used as their legs. There's one specifically in the second game where you see it get, dr you know, drill its little tendrils into the person's, like, forehead, and their forehead, like, op or their whole face just, like, opens up, like, um some kind of like Venus flytrap, it is disgusting. It is body horror at its finest, and it is incredibly shocking and incredibly stressful when you are coming down a dark corridor and you see these things, or you, more importantly, you hear them in the walls and the pipes, and you just see it, you just see, you know, whether it's one or whether a swarm of them just come shambling down at various speeds at you, and you have to be able to stop them, because if they catch you, you are dead. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the atmosphere of the game. The uh, uneasiness that you feel is in large part due to the Ishimura as a setting. Um, I am a huge fan of setting the events of a story in a single location, especially if that location happens to be a space station or a spaceship of some kind. And seeing... Isaac Clarke and company have to fight their way through this giant ship that is the USG Ishimura is incredibly thrilling and terrifying all in one go. And the Ishimura is massive. Um, anytime you'll get onto like a rail or some kind of like, they're, they're essentially like little mini subways uh, taking you from one section of the Ishimura to the other. You will see on like a little graphic like how far you are going, which makes the Ishimura feel even bigger than it does, you know, while you're making your way through, which I think is a testament really to the game design. Uh, this game is incredibly linear. You're going from hallway to hallway, but the way that they are able to uh, recontextualize each hallway that you go through as a different part of the ship, or even when you're backtracking through a section you have already been in, but, a, but an extra light is out, just amps up the tension, amps up the drama, and really gets you to 
stay on your toes. There is no point in this game that you can breathe a sigh of relief and just be like, nothing poss- nothing bad could possibly happen here. Uh, specifically, I remember I was accessing a terminal that I thought I was like, okay, I wiped out everything in the previous room. I haven't encountered anything in these uh, terminal rooms since or yet. So I'm going to access this terminal. And halfway through accessing this terminal, Necromorph just comes out of the side of the screen and just rips me to shreds um this game never lets you take a breath and it never allows you to get comfortable which could be incredibly stressful but as you are making your way through and you start to get a bit more familiar with your surroundings you get to bit be a bit more proficient with your uh with your tools and with your weapons the weapons at hand uh, you start to really build up isaac clark as not just this you know nameless faceless guy trying to just make his way through a really bad day you really start to develop him into this necromorph killing machine and let's talk about isaac clark a little bit isaac clark is the perfect protagonist for a story like this mainly for the reason that isaac clark you never see his face until the very end it's very uh, metroid in that way but also you never hear him speak once in the entire game this would of course change in subsequent sequels but having isaac clark fully decked out in this um, space engineer suit that he is having to essentially retrofit as much as he can into turning into genuine um necromorph hunting armor uh is fascinating and watching uh isaac go through all this and the only real um sounds you get from him are these like labored breaths or him getting ripped apart and screaming like it really puts you in the shoes of isaac clark you become this character you see yourself through this character and seeing just the the really uh, subtle visual cues that they've imbued into the character from him just, you know, jumping whenever something jumps out at him or whether, you know, anytime he watches one of Nicole's transmissions, his shoulders slump and he just, you know, looks sad. Um, they are able to imbue a hell of a lot of character into this um completely silent protagonist uh they do a great job in doing what you know they have been doing with legend of zelda for years having link be the silent protagonist which in a way gets you to fill up their shoes a little bit more it gets you a little bit more immersed in the character and it really gets you a little bit more immersed in the story and the world that you are living in um and that really benefits the gameplay which is what we're going to talk about right now because the gameplay is on paper very um by the number survival horror uh that you can tell even especially if you play them back to back um, the huge influence that uh, Resident Evil 4 had on Dead Space when it comes to the survival horror genre, when it comes to getting equipment, uh, killing things to get resources, any kind of crafting. Uh, there is a lot that was homaged and maybe ripped off from uh, Resident Evil 4 in Dead Space, but that being said, the setting and the way that those tropes are utilized is so inherently dead space that you can't really uh, 
one-to-one equate them in that way. Uh, I already talked about the, as the uh, game devs refer to it, strategic dismemberment. That is the core uh, tenet of the game, having to use your guns as well as different abilities uh, following this to dismember your enemies instead of just trying to focus your attention on one solitary target um, is incredibly satisfying, especially when you get abilities like stasis, where you're able to freeze uh, a necromorph so that you get a little bit more time to line up your shots, to take off their limbs, and it is incredibly satisfying when you come around a corner, you see a necromorph that you're able to dismember, taking off both of its upper limbs, and then you turn around, there's another necromorph that you can stasis, take off both of its legs, does it disable it from moving towards you and then you can go to town on it later on um it is it really um leaves the door open for inventive gameplay which you wouldn't expect in something as linear as dead space is but it allows you to use everything at your arsenal and allows you to really tailor your gameplay style to the game of course there are weapons and abilities that are optimized for players like stasis but you can go through the game for the most part and in these kind of action uh um, encounters not use it whatsoever it will make it incredibly difficult for you but it is not impossible to get through these uh, encounters by any means necessary and if you have a specific gun or you have a specific ability that you really want to hone in on you can upgrade that and you can make them better and better what just happened there? Uh, you can make it better and better so that you can, again, tailor your play style to the game itself. Um, which goes a long way, I think, to the immersion of the game. I talked, I mentioned it before. Um, the immersion in this game is off the charts when it comes to the sound design. Uh, going through a hallway, just having, you know, the little creaks and the little um, shuffling in the pipes from different, you know, uh, species of necromorphs. I don't even know if they would be called species or just like types of necromorphs. But um, everything is so chilling. Everything is so uneasy. Um, it is really, really good at ratcheting up the tension at any given time. Uh, I mentioned it before, you can go down a hallway, find yourself at a dead end, turn around, and then a light goes out in the hallway. And you're like, no. <laughs> there were so many times that I remember just having to set the controller down and be like, nope, I don't want to go through this hallway. I don't. I, I was just through there. I don't want to go back through there. And that kind of um, experience, at least for me, is uh, so rare and so few and far between that I cherish it every single time that I get to uh, have those feelings those real you know putting you in the in the shoes of that character on what you would want to do next um, also there is something that if you are playing the game for the first time you'll notice immediately especially when it comes to different um, horror survival games uh, there's no UI you know the UI that you would typically see in a game like this is gone uh, you, if you don't, if you're not looking for it, you wouldn't even know where your health meter is. Um, I remember I got very frustrated first playing this game because I didn't know where the health bar was. But they integrate the health bar essentially into Isaac's armor, so that you have to keep an eye on your character while you are keeping an eye on the um, 
on the meters and the health bars and all that stuff, which I think, again, really feeds into and complements the immersion that they're going for. Uh, also, that being said, the weapons that are utilized throughout the game, uh, you start off with a little, little plasma cutter, little, little this little thing that is made for uh, engineering jobs, and you have to use this little, uh, this little guy against these just gigantic, awful creatures. And it is thrilling because it really puts you in this mindset of the underdog trying to just survive throughout the game. And as, of course, you do find more guns that were made for, you know, the Marines and the uh, researchers and the security officers, you get to up your game with that. But you are always coming to those with the knowledge that okay i am just a guy finding this stuff and trying to utilize it to the best of my ability uh that also goes to um great effect with the armor upgrades because you are taking your little engineering armor your little basic welding looking uh helmet and your little um super underprepared armor on this and you're consistently building it up you're grafting new pieces onto it you are upgrading the uh, stability the resilience of your character and it all feels really satisfying uh i i can go either way when it comes to different crafting um i'm 50 50 on it i've seen really uh, great implementation of crafting in video games and I've also seen really unnecessary crafting in video games and in Dead Space specifically the very limited crafting system that they have installed in there is used excellently when it comes to its usage in the game as well as its utility in the game because you can have a great crafting system but if you don't need it then there's no point to have it um Similarly, uh, you could have a crafting system that is, you know, um, required to get through the game. But if it's a terrible system, then it's going to kind of push you away from wanting to use that system. Dead Space uses every tool in its toolbox to really get you immersed in the game and get you invested in wanting to see Isaac upgrade and become a better, uh, a better necromorph hunter in that way. There's also alongside the combat, alongside the uh, information gathering when, with different audio logs and collectibles and trying to manage your ammo, manage your resources. There are also some environmental puzzles that are involved. The Ishimura is a big ship. And since it is offline, there are certain things that you're going to have to do to get it back online. And because Isaac is our plucky engineer, he is uh, uniquely suited to make these um, make these things happen. So going through these puzzles, which I will say uh, there are some clunky puzzles in here. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, but for the most part, I'd say like it's a 60-40 deal. Maybe even 30-70 on good puzzles to uh, frustrating puzzles. Um and I am of the mind that a puzzle should be uh, a game mechanic where you have all the tools, it comes down to you on figuring out how to solve this problem. And in that way, with that description, uh, as opposed to a puzzle is something that is just difficult from the get-go, you may or may not have what you need to get through it, and when you end up solving it it's more of a uh, common sense like oh what the hell like you don't feel any accomplishment um solving these puzzles uh you can 
you could find quite a few games that fit that that fit that description. But this game, thankfully, um, even in the ones that I found incredibly frustrating, uh, really allows you to solve these puzzles through your own ingenuity rather than it being something that the game isn't telling you. And I enjoy that. I enjoy that aspect of it, and it makes this this game when it comes to its gameplay incredibly fun and really rewarding as the game goes on regardless of what difficulty you're on something that also i would say really sells how good this game is is the voice cast man this voice cast is great whether it's just the um creature sounds whether it's like i said just the sound design or whether it's legit just the performances from this super talented cast a couple shout outs i want to give uh peter mensa one of my favorites brian bloom who we uh mentioned played captain america and avengers earth's mightiest heroes uh brian bloom's the man he is great uh gunner wright plays isaac clark for all of what you see with him um in this game and then his role is of course expanded upon in the uh, sequels but i really want to give some shout outs as well to iari lemon i probably pronounced that wrong and i apologize and i'm going to pronounce this one wrong as well but tonzantzin carmelo do an excellent job with their roles really everybody is firing on all cylinders and there isn't a bad performance but those five voice actors are the ones that really sell it for me they are incredible and they go a very long way to show how video games can be an art form we're a long way from wow what a mansion so, you know, just to harken back to Resident Evil 1, like, we have made progress. And, you know, a good video game can be incredibly hampered by a terrible voice cast. But thankfully, the voice cast is very well, not just well casted, but providing incredible performances to carry the story along and really make this... Uh, really make the story shine so speaking of that story let's get into it a little bit let's talk about some of some of the key points that happen here um stuff that i think is important for you to know again spoilers if you haven't played the game yet pause this go play it it's a hell of a time come back we'll discuss it but um really the game is about Isaac navigating through the Ishimura, avoiding necromorphs where he can, and trying to reconnect with Kendra and Hammond while also getting the Ishimura up and running again. Uh, they almost are able to uh, repair their original ship, the Kellyan, but it is destroyed during another malfunction. And following this, they start to have some hallucinations as we come to find out that red marker, you know, giving, um, or inducing rather, psychosis, uh, paranoia, hallucinations. Um, Isaac continues to make his way through the Ishimura trying to figure out what the hell happened here. As we come to find out through the various audio logs, uh, Isaac comes to find out that the Church of Unitology was using the Ishimura to bring the uh, Red Marker on board from Aegis 7, as we stated, uh, to because they worship it. They worship it. It is a key part of their religion and of their faith. However, the uh, colony that was 
I guess, in charge of or was um, responsible for unearthing the red marker was consumed by necromorphs and bringing the red marker just brought the infection with it and of course that is what happened to everyone on here going through the ship is terrifying there are moments where you know you go through areas where people were struggling you know you go through areas where everyone's turned or you go through areas where people committed suicide to stop themselves from being killed or being ripped apart by the um by the necromorphs themselves uh the aegis 7 colony itself the planet is barren the colony was wiped out by the psychosis triggered by the marker and it basically had the same exact effect on the ishimura uh isaac does end up finding two survivors from the ishimura that being uh terence kine or dr kine who was this um who I guess was formerly part of the Church of Unitology, but has given it up because of, understandably, everything that's happened here. Uh, but they also run into Chalice Mercer, uh, who is a uh, crew member on the USG Shimura, who has been driven insane by the Red Marker and wants nothing more than to worship his new necromorph, necromorph overlords. Um, unfortunately, because of... Mercer being just uh, cuckoo banana pants, uh, he ends up getting Hammond killed, which was sad because I'm a I'm a big Peter Mensa fan. Um, all my Spartacus fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Hammond is killed, and unfortunately, uh, this results in Mercer also being turned into a necromorph, and directly influences what happens when another ship you know, of the same kind of class and crew as the Kellyan called the Valor shows up to supposedly help out the uh, remaining members, that being just Isaac and Kendra at this point. Um, fortunately, there's an escape pod that is launched from the Ishimura to the Valor, and surprise, that escape pod contains a necromorph who basically goes and rips apart and kills everyone on the Valor. We come to find out later through Isaac again that the Valor was actually from uh, the company to basically go there and wipe out all traces of the Ishimura's involvement with the uh, wiping out of the colony. So you see that there are some really crooked corporate dealings going on here. I know, crooked corporations, absolute shocker. But um, it is uh, basically starting to come down to the wire. Uh, Isaac is running out of options. He doesn't know what's going to what's going to happen. He's still looking for Nicole, who is nowhere to be found. And finally, uh, is able to regroup with Kendra and Doctor Kine right before Kendra kills Doctor Kine and reveals that she is part of the um, the government crew or the government uh, faction that wants to uh, wipe out all traces of the Shimura, and she wants to basically take the uh, marker and use it to connect to the uh, necro necromorph's hive mind, because they're all part of this like weird um, hive mind where um, just the influence of the marker holds... Um, 
what's it called um holds dominance over the will of all of the necromorphs as we come to find out as i stated earlier uh the marker was basically a human-made replica of an artifact that was found on earth and it was initially put on age of seven as part of an experiment so the wiping out of the colony on age seven was um intentional which is horrifying and really really depressing um so basically uh kendra tries to escape with the marker uh isaac is able to sabotage her ship and in the process reunites with nicole that's right nicole is here she seems to be okay if a little shaken up um isaac is able to go with nicole and take the marker back down to age seven essentially um, negating all of the necromorphs on top or inside the Ishimura. And so they make plans to leave. So they are going to get off this godforsaken rock and get out of here because returning the marker to Aegis 7 is causing Aegis 7 to uh, essentially start to fall apart. Uh, the planet has been cracked previously, and so it is... Um, it is basically on a collision course with the remains of the, uh, of the planet that was taken from the, or taken by the Ishimura. So they got to get out of there. However, on planet side, Kendra's there. Isn't that weird? So Kendra is, um, Kendra basically takes the marker from Isaac and reveals that Nicole isn't alive. Nicole isn't there. She is this Tyler Durden-style hallucination that the marker um, put into Isaac's mind to bring the marker and return it to the hive mind on Aegis 7. So, uh, as we come to find out, the initial message that Isaac kept viewing, whether it was on the Kellyanne at the beginning or throughout different points of the Ishimura, ends with Nicole committing suicide so that she wouldn't become a necromorph. Like I said, this story is incredibly dark and gets really, really um, just unsettling and disturbing, even more so, and it just kind of builds throughout the game. It's terrifying, and it's incredibly sad as well. Um, however, the hive mind awakens with the uh, help of the marker and this giant Cthulhu-style horrifying necromorph ends up killing Kendra, crushing her to death with one of its uh, little tendril tentacle things. And Isaac is able to kill the creature, utilizing everything that he had gained during his odyssey on the Ishimura. Um, he's able to leave on Kendra's shuttle, just as the uh, remains of the planet that the Ishimura was holding is released and makes impact, destroying the planet. And the end of the game is this very quiet and reflective uh, moment with Isaac, where he takes off his helmet. We get to see Isaac's face for the very first time in the entire game. Um, he's sitting there, and he just doesn't know what's going to happen before he slowly turns to the right side to the passenger seat in the shuttle and is attacked by a violent hallucination of Nicole. And that is the jump scare cliffhanger to end the game. Um, I, oh man, this was a moment. I remember sitting 
there having completed the game, sitting there just breathing a sigh of relief, like, okay, everything's going to be okay. He's alive. I set the controller down. And I'm watching this, you know, kind of, you know, you get that feeling when you've completed a game and you're like, okay, you know, it's the come down. I'm starting to get a little bit more relaxed now. And then all of a sudden he turns over, there's Nicole, and she just does this like thing like straight at the screen. It's terrifying. I fell backwards out of the chair I was sitting in. Um, It was incredible. It was one last jump scare to end off the whole thing, and it was the perfect way to end this game. Um, And I think there was, you know, a part of me that basically said, like, that is a perfect way to end this game. You don't know what's going to happen. Is it a hallucination? Is it not? What happens to Isaac following this? And it's a perfect way to end this incredibly disturbing saga. And what ended up happening was this was only chapter one of the story, getting two sequels following this. I will say, um, even though in certain aspects, I would say that Dead Space 2 is better than Dead Space 1. Don't come at me. But... There are certain aspects where it is. Um, it, it was kind of like an alien-alien situation where Al- Aliens 2 like ramped up the uh, production value and really ramped up the uh, danger and action. Dead Space 2 d- does the same thing in uh, kind of a similar effect on the story. Dead Space 3, I will say that um, is probably my least favorite of the series, and I don't think that's an unpopular opinion. Um, but that being said, I will say there were diminishing returns on the concept and you never got any better than this initial dead space entry. So it is absolutely worth your time. Um, if you want to play it, if you haven't played it yet, or you haven't played it in a while and you want to replay it, you can find it on steam for PC. Uh, the only way, unfortunately to play it console wise is through backwards compatibility on Xbox one. You have to get the uh, Xbox 360 copy, put it in your Xbox One, and you'll be able to play it just fine. There's no way, unfortunately, to play it on PS4, uh, which sucks because, again, even though I would say that the game uh, is a little bit, you know, it's 12 years old and is... uh, I would say starting to show its age. Uh, The game is still incredibly sharp. There are certain moments with like the lighting and the atmosphere that you could easily believe that this was made in the last five, six years. Um, And it is absolutely worth your time. You should go check this out. This is one of my favorite examples of survival horror. One of the best, I would say, as well. And if you're a fan of sci-fi, if you're a fan of horror, if you're a fan of running for your life from terrifying creatures, then Dead Space is the perfect experience for you.
It is now time for the Wild Card Weekly Review. Between the conclusion of Season 2 of The Boys and the premiere of Season 2 of The Mandalorian, we're reviewing a couple spooky installments in our weekly review segment. This week we're tackling the pilot episode of Hellstrom. This is the Marvel-ish show on Hulu. The entire season dropped this past week. I was going to be reviewing the entire season but after this pilot episode man um i figured i would just review the episode because i wasn't i wasn't interested in the rest of the show i'm sorry if you liked it awesome great i was not a fan um this is the last gasp this is the final installment of the uh Loeb marvel tv era that's all of the marvel tv shows headed up by jeff Loeb before uh Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios really takes over Marvel TV. And I wish, I wish uh, this era was going out with a stronger, um, a stronger case. But unfortunately, we got Hellstrom. Um, I am, l- let me, let me just preface this. I don't think that Hellstrom is bad. Uh, it wasn't like, a slog to get through it wasn't like oh this is terrible everything's just awful um it's worse in a way because i just i didn't really get invested in any of it which sucks and i i don't like saying that um Damon and Satana Hellstrom are two super interesting characters uh, with a hell of a backstory and they've popped up all over the place in marvel comics uh Damon himself was the star of Son of Satan uh, and I just I really wanted to like this more than I did and I kind of knew that I wasn't going to be you know head over heels for it when it was announced just because when it was first announced it was going to be part of this like Midnight Suns style like initiative where they were going to have this they were going to have Ghost Rider and they were going to have I think something else, and they were all going to come together at one point and be the Midnight Suns. Um, but after they scrapped Ghost Rider, after they scrapped everything else on the Hulu slate except for Modoc, I was like, why are we still doing Hellstrom, guys? Um, but they went ahead and went through it, um, and I watched the first episode. I was going to, like I said, review the entire season, but I just... I I just I couldn't get invested in it. I couldn't get um I couldn't get emotionally attached to anything that was happening. I was bored, and that sucks because nobody does like a straight up terrible job. It's not like, "Oh, this is atrocious." But um I just I wasn't interested. Uh episode 1 is entitled Mother's Little Helpers, and this really is, you know, it does what a pilot's supposed to do. It introduces our two main leads Damon and Anna not Satana which is her name and I guess from what I understand they're the whole um who's their father is supposed to be like a mystery throughout the entire season which um I guess having Anna's full name be Satana would kind of spoil that um but I just I don't know I I I think it was it was so funny because I had to keep reminding myself that um that Damon Hellstrom isn't played by I think his name's Chase Crawford. Let me look this up real quick. Uh he plays the deep on the boys. 
uh it was like they they could easily like they could be brothers i was like so taken aback i was like whoa wait a second why do you why do you look like this um let me see here uh da, 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 the deep actor yeah chase crawford so they look strikingly similar especially with how they kind of did up the character and i was super thrown off by that um, but he's basically, he's your run-of-the-mill, like, um, Constantine knockoff, uh, which is not how he is in the comics, and it's really disappointing, because that this is kind of the direction that they decided to go with him. Um, there was a scene very early on where uh, Damon shows up to do, like, a... Uh, like an exorcism it's got all the tropes like he shows up you know there's an upstairs a child's supposed to be possessed kids hiding under the bed he's speaking latin and it was like bad and as i'm watching the scene i was like oh my god this is bad because the child actor is so bad but like as you come to find out it's on purpose like the the actual like the character is actually acting like he's possessed uh, to get shit to, like, I guess, make his parents' lives miserable. Um, so I liked that it wasn't, like, as bad as I thought it was going to be, like, going in. But again, like, Damon is pretty much every, like, Constantine, Dean Winchester-like style character that you've seen before. I was hoping that that was going to be counterbalanced by Satana. I'm going to call her Satana because just calling her Anna is a disservice to the actual character. Um, and they start her off fairly strong, uh, question mark. Um, she looks nothing like Satana does in the comics, which I get, um, you know, the long flowing white hair with the two giant like ram horns coming out of her, uh, coming out of her head would be a little strange and a little hard to sell, but they decided to give her the most like stock generic look that you would find for a character like this and again it has nothing to do with the performance of the actress i think both of the leads are actually very strong in what they're given um but the writing is not terribly strong um the uh the cinematography is kind of blah all the horror stuff is stuff we've seen before and i'm i you know I've, i talked about it on this episode uh, i'm not a huge horror guy um, it, I, I can appreciate it. I don't seek it out, but I can always appreciate it when it's good. Um, this was not as good. <laughs> um, I wasn't even freaked out by some of the stuff that they did in this because it was very, I don't know. It felt, I don't like to use the word generic, but it felt very generic. Um, I wasn't super impressed with anything that they really, uh, brought forward, which is unfortunate because this had the potential to be, you know, Marvel's first horror story. Um, but I just, I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't really feeling it. Uh, there was some, there's a couple jump scares, some like weird, like body movements, but nothing that was really like unsettling. Um, they do a good enough job trying to like set the tone with like, um, the ambiance, the lighting, uh, is very like dark and moody but it's more like dark and moody rather than like dark and disturbing if that makes any sense um other than that like i i was actually really impressed by um by uh the mother the mother the the mama hellstrom um who is played by let me pull this up here uh elizabeth marvel um 
that's hilarious. Uh, she was really interesting. Um, I, th- I thought out of everyone's performance, she did the best. Um, just for point of reference and for some housekeeping, uh, Satana is voiced by Sidney Lemon and Tom Austin is, or, and Tom Austin plays Damon Hellstrom. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess her name is Victoria Hellstrom was like, I think the strongest performance. I really liked what she was doing. She's like the mom who's like locked up in this intensive care. She's like possessed by a demon that calls itself mother. Um, I don't know, but, uh, they played a little bit with the idea of like, oh, you know, their father was a serial killer and like he did something to them. And like, there's enough there with like, oh, and Damon has powers and Sydney kills people. I mean, Sydney, Satana like kills people. So like, there's enough there that if it really catches your eye and if it did again, totally okay. Um, I won't judge you. Uh, There's enough there that if it interests you, it'll at least take you to an episode two. But for me, there just wasn't enough. Um, It's an okay start, but there just wasn't anything there to get me really attached to it. It's like if you took... um, It's basically like it feels like if you took... um, Constantine and kind of mashed it together with Supernatural. I know I made that comparison already, but like that's really what it feels like. Uh, because even though like Hulu straight up, like as soon as you start it up, it's like this is for mature audiences. There's nothing that you haven't seen out, you know, outside of a Supernatural or outside of a Constantine that really like is like, whoa, this is cool. Um, I even, to be honest with you, there was some more gruesome stuff that happened in Daredevil than what happened here. Um, And that was, you know, kind of the thing, like reflecting as I was watching, which again, you know, I just wasn't present for it. Um, Reflecting as I was watching this, it really made me miss Daredevil. Um, It really made me miss like that, like beginning of this era with all of the Netflix Marvel shows. And it sucks that, you know, this era of Marvel television kind of doesn't really go out with a bang. It kind of goes out with a whimper. Um, But you know what, at the same time, you know, I, I couldn't wish more for someone like Jeff Loeb. So complicated feelings as we've addressed before on the podcast. Um, but overall I would, if I had to give it like some arbitrary rating out of like out of 10, I'd probably give it like a three out of 10. Like I said, for me, um, there just wasn't enough there to really get me attached to it. Um, if you're coming to this as a Marvel fan, there isn't enough to grab onto to like really feel like you can um you can really enjoy it and if you're a horror fan there's nothing there that you've really that you haven't seen before so i don't know exactly who this was supposed to be um targeted for or who the show really is for um and that's kind of the sentiment that i'm hearing from a lot of people um, if you have watched it all the way through, please feel free to correct me. Do they end up calling her Satana? Who knows? But, um, for me, this is just, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's just there. Um, so that does it for this week's Wildcard Weekly Review. Next week, we'll, we will be doing one more Wildcard Weekly Review before we dive in, uh, feet first into The Mandalorian Season 2. But for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. 
Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop on Comixology or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get to this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And I'll be honest with you, you know, it was a nice little come down from the just mountain of comics that we got the previous week but um it was a little tough to really uh pick a comic to be my pick of the week nothing really like stood out for me which was disappointing um dark knight's death metal number four was one that i was really anticipating especially with how strong the tie-ins were going into it but i was kind of surprised at how much i um at how much i I feel like they made the tie-ins a little bit inconsequential. I had a problem with how they were kind of, um, how they utilized Wally after that killer speed metal issue. Seriously, if you haven't gone back and read that, like you could end Dark Knight's death metal there. And like, that's, that could be perfect. But, um, I wasn't super impressed by Dark Knight's death metal number four, which was surprising and disappointing. But um, the book that I ended up kind of settling on, the one that I enjoyed, I think, the most out of the week, uh, was Strange Adventures number six, written by Tom King, with art by Mitch Jarrods and Doc Shaner. Um, I thought the book was incredibly strong. I really, I have really enjoyed Strange Adventures since it began, and I feel like every issue, it just gets better and better and better. Um, This kind of focus on the really interesting uh conversation that alana has with mr terrific i thought was really cool and of course the art is always stellar so i really enjoyed it like i said strange adventures has been killer from the get so i would definitely pick go back and catch up if you haven't already uh but that's last week's books let's talk about this week's books this week's books we've got one two three four five six seven uh we've got seven books for you this week i'll be talking about each book's title creative team and a brief synopsis accompanied by of course some synopsis voices um so let's go ahead and just jump right into it so first off this is a this is a tentative especially with what i just talked about in the uh pick of the week from last week uh dark knight's death metal robin king number one written by pete j tomasi with art or yes it's written by uh pete tomasi and tony patrick with art by daniel samper sampere sampere i mispronounced your name and i apologize as well as riley rosmo um the robin king i feel like has a lot of potential um but I don't know if he's been utilized to his strengths here, which I think is kind of um, emblematic of a lot of these twisted uh, Batman, especially Batman Who Laughs, which seems to just like keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but I am interested enough to pick this up because I'm interested in the character. I will I will let you know that I was disappointed that um, the Robin King was just kid bruce wayne and not you know tim drake or like a really messed up other robin but i digress let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here with a utility belt filled to the brim with the weapons designed to kill every hero in the dcu robin king is the most sadistic soldier in the darkest knight's evil army 
Can anyone stop him from laying waste to Earth's last line of defense? And how did he become one of the Batman who laughs Groblins in the first place? And in the backup story, can the Robins liberate Gotham City from the Darkest Knight's control? So, um, I'm interested. I'm definitely interested. Um, the... I'm almost more interested in the backup story than the main story, but um, I'll be picking it up. The tie-ins, at least for uh, Dark Knight's Death Metal, have been really strong, so hopefully this continues that ball rolling. Uh, next up, we have X-Men number three, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Mahmoud Azrar. Uh, I was really disappointed when I found out that uh, Lenil Francis Yu would be leaving the series after uh, issue 12, but Mahmoud Azrar is pretty freaking good, so I'm excited to see him on this book it's a it's a welcome uh, addition to the creative team for sure this is chapter 10 <laughs> oh this is chapter 10 of uh 10 of swords um i think x-men number 12 was like chapter 2 um so they've they've been rolling with it i'm i'm hoping that this uh that i don't feel lost here because i haven't been following it i will let you know um but I have been picking up the mainline X-Men book. I've been enjoying it, so I'm hoping that this continues uh, that streak. So let's go ahead and dive into the very long synopsis here. Lessons. Longing. What has begun cannot be undone. So yeah, really, uh, really descriptive. Uh, I'm wondering, and I might, I might have to do this. I might have to go back. Um, if every single like chapter of Ten of Swords, this the um, what's it called, the solicits all fit together in like one giant solicit. I might do that after this wraps up, just to see, just to see if it makes any sense. But um, like I said, I've been enjoying the X Men book Ten of Swords. I can kind of take or leave, but. I'll definitely be picking this up. Next up, we have Batman number 101, written by James Tynan IV, with art by Guillaume March and Tomu Mori. Um, I really enjoyed Batman number 100. Uh, there are certain things, certain directions that I was surprised that they went in. Uh, this is, of course, the aftermath of the Joker War, and it's going to lead into what happens next with the character, or maybe what doesn't happen next with the character. <laughs> uh, we, we mentioned it in the news segment, um, Future State, and we will be, as I stated before, um, talking, to, talking to Malcolm from the Young the Subject podcast very soon about this, so look forward to that, but... Um, I'm interested to see how they kind of wrap this up, because if that's going to be, you know, January and February is going to be just future state stuff, how are they going to wrap up what's going on with Batman by the end of December? So that'll be interesting. But let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. A new day dawns in Gotham City, and the horrific aftermath of the Joker War is only starting to unfold. How has the Joker's rampage affected the citizens of the city? What legacy did the Crown Prince of Crime leave? And how will it hit the Dark Knight? And why does Cole Cash, a.k.a. Grifter, now work for Lucius Fox? So it looks like they're slowly starting to, you know, peak some feature state stuff in, which is interesting. Um, I like Grifter. 
uh, just kind of on his own. I think, you know, if you put him in a story or you put him in a situation that also could feature Jason Todd, it kind of cancels Grifter out. But that's just me. Um, but I'll, I'm interested. I'll be picking this up for sure. Next up, we have Iron Man number two, written by Christopher Cantwell with art by Kafu. I really enjoyed Iron Man number one. I don't, I don't know what I was expecting, but Iron Man number one really was awesome. I really, really enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to picking this up. Um, I like this new direction for Iron Man, kind of bring, bring, bringing bringing ah, bringing him back to basics, so to speak. Um, this should be fun. I'm looking forward to this. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Tony has company, and his name is Korvac. Tony Stark continues to roughly dismantle the fancy, shiny, and sophisticated ways of his past, but the world doesn't seem quite convinced that he's changed his rich guy tune. As Iron Man, he takes the fight to the streets, looking to sacrifice himself on the altar of superheroism again and again, first with Arcade and Absorbing Man, then with the medical vigilante Cardiac, all in the hope of redemption in the eyes of the public. Only trouble is, he might get himself killed in the process, and there are still plenty of people in line with an axe to grind. Old friends like Hellcat try to help him find peace of mind and speak truth to his stubborn god complex, but lurking on the horizon is a threat Tony, and indeed the entire cosmos, hasn't seen in years. Korvac, yet another guy who believes he's smarter than the rest of the universe. So, <laughs> I was just talking about, yeah, I really like this, like, grounded back-to-basics approach, and we're bringing in Korvac, who is, like, a cosmic-level threat. Sure. Um, I, I have faith in the story with how strong the first issue was, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with this. Uh, next up, we have Batman White Knight Presents Harley Quinn number one. This is the first spinoff in the Batman White Knight universe, uh, written by Katana Collins and Sean Gordon Murphy with art by Matteo Scalera. I am a huge Matteo Scalera mark, and I was so excited when I saw his name attached to this way back when they announced it. Um, I'm looking forward to this. Harley Quinn, this version of Harley Quinn, the Batman White Knight version of Harley Quinn, I think is one of the most interesting iterations of the character um, of both the the original incarnation and the Neo-Joker incarnation. If you haven't read Batman White Knight, we did an episode on it, but I sincerely think you should read it. It is fantastic, and I believe Curse of the White Knight is collected now. I'd have to double-check that, but uh, you should pick that up too, because that book was great as well. Um, Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Joker is dead. Bruce Wayne is behind bars, and Gotham City is just starting to redefine itself without Batman. As Harley Quinn struggles to adjust to her new life as the mother of Jack Napier's twins, an elusive mastermind called The Producer seizes the moment to assemble a crew of villains, starting with The Starlet, a serial killer who murders Gotham's Golden Age film stars in homage to their silver screen roles. When a recent gruesome crime scene suggests a connection to the Joker, the GTO and FBI agent Hector Quimby return to Harley as the one person with information that could crack the case. With some help help from Bruce, Harley agrees to investigate, but to protect her children and her city from a fatal final act, Harley must flirt with madness and confront her own past. 
So that sounds really interesting. Um, I think it's it has the makings of being really interesting. What I really like about the White Knight universe is how um, neo-noir it feels. Uh, I like the idea of putting Harley Quinn into a detective noir situation, a detective noir story. Um, she is a psychologist, and we could get like a kind of... Um, I don't know. It, it, it's not exactly the same, but we could get kind of like a Red Dragon situation where she's like, you know, trying to get into the head of the killer and like visiting someone in prison to get their expertise, this time being Bruce. Um, I think that's really interesting. I'm really looking forward to this. It should be really cool. And again, that Mateo Scalera art, man. I can't wait to read this. It's going to be gorgeous. Uh, next up, we have Daredevil, number 23, written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Marco Cicchetto. Um, It looks like the new artist from last issue was just kind of a stopgap, but this one features, at least from what I'm looking on the cover, Marco Cicchetto back in rare form and includes a team-up that uh, is one of my favorites in all of Marvel Comics. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Truth a dare. Part 3. Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, has been putting his life back together after the monumental first year of Chip Zdarsky and Marco Cicchetto's run, but the criminals of Hell's Kitchen aren't inclined to give him any more time to heal. Criminals aren't all Matt will have to contend with on the road ahead, as the likes of Typhoid Mary and Bullseye have made their presence known once more. To say nothing of Electra and her designs for the kitchen, the city and the world. So that's a lot of plate spitting. On top of all that, it didn't mention it in the synopsis, but the cover shows uh, Daredevil teaming up with Spidey. So the Spider-Man Daredevil combination, I think, is magic anytime that it's used. And I really am looking forward to seeing exactly what they do here. But the big book of the week, the book I absolutely think you should be picking up, and the book that I cannot wait to get my hands on, it's so nice to say this again, is Nightwing number 75, written by Jan, Dan, Jer, Jan Durgens, written by Dan, Jer, that's how excited I am, written by Dan Jurgens with art by Ronan Cliquette and Travis Moore, love me some Travis Moore drawn Nightwing, uh, this is returning to form for Nightwing. Nightwing's back, Rick Grayson is over, Rick Grayson is gone, and Nightwing is uh, just out and proud on the cover of this it's so great to see him back in blue i loved seeing him return in joker war that's one of the things that i think we can say is at least one positive of joker war regardless of how you feel about it it brought nightwing back so i'm really excited to pick this up um the cover is very ominous and i'm sure they're going to mention this in the uh synopsis so let's go ahead and just dive into the synopsis here who is Dick Grayson? In the wake of the Joker War, Nightwing is back. But is he back for good? And does he remember B? With the help of Batman, Batgirl, his Teen Titans friends, and even Alfred, Nightwing must decide for himself which path to take. Then, when KG Beast discovers Nightwing is still alive, his street credibility is on the line if he doesn't go to finish the job he started when he tried to kill Nightwing, and missed. Nightwing better watch his back as he wants to be back for good. Man, that's... that's how you sell Nightwing being back. 
picking up immediately from when he was last Nightwing, immediately from when he was uh, the last moments as Dick Grayson. Um, I love this premise. I really, really, really dig this premise. Um, putting Nightwing up against KG Beast, who is now intent on killing him for good, um, is going to be a great story. Even if it's just, you know, this first issue, I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited that Nightwing's back. Um, I'm just, I'm really looking forward to this. It's going to be a good time. So to recap, we have Dark Knight's Death Metal, Robin King number one, X-Men number 13, Batman number 101, Iron Man number two, Batman White Knight presents Harley Quinn number one, Daredevil number 23, and Nightwing number 75. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us here on the Geek Explained podcast, please feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice. really does help us out here, as well as give us a rating and review. really helps me out, especially if you give them on uh, iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call them. Uh, just raises our stock in the podcasting realm and gets, us, gets the word of us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you do give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can join the esteemed likes of ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, and Matt Draper. Big thanks to those three gentlemen for their contributions to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a... Uh, a question for me answered. If you want to get my opinion on something, feel free to write in uh, for our Geeksplained mailbag. You can send emails to geeksplained at gmail.com if you have questions for me, if you want to get my opinion on something, if you want to see if I prefer something over another, just get my uh, unfiltered, unprepared thoughts on something, feel free to send those in. And finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at geeksplainedpod. That's at P. Od uh, to keep up with all the happenings with the podcast, to connect with us, as well as have a say in certain uh, episodes that we have going on the podcast, vote in polls. Currently, we have a poll going up right now to decide what our uh, Halloween special commentary is going to be. Every year on the podcast for Halloween, I do a, a full-on uh, live commentary for a specific film. The first year we did did its chapter one which was terrifying because i do not deal with clowns i just have a really hard time with that um last year we did batman 1989 to celebrate its what was that 30 year anniversary that's crazy and this year we've got a poll going up right now as of this recording to decide what film we are going to do for next week i'm really excited about it as this episode drops you'll have two days left to vote currently the films that we have uh that you are able to vote for are It Chapter 2, please don't vote for this, uh, Resident Evil from 2002, Blade from 1998, and The Batman vs. Dracula. Currently, Batman vs. Dracula is in the lead with 42%, but again, as this episode drops, we'll still have two days, and I will be making the announcement for which uh, movie we will be doing that commentary track for on Friday of this week, so make sure you get your vote in and that is going to do it for this week's episode um 
Overall, I've been loving diving into the more spooky concepts for this month. That's always a really fun time for October on this podcast, and I'm thinking of making this a tradition. So far, we've done kind of something special each year, but I think Geektober has been a pretty pretty good success so far. So I'm pretty I'm excited. I've been having a great time with it, and it seems like we've been uh, getting some really good feedback, which I appreciate from all of you. Feedback is always welcome. Uh, this is a podcast podcast for Geeks by Geeks, so I really, really do appreciate any input that all our listeners have. So next week will be our final installment of Geektober. As I said, we will be announcing the film I'll be doing the live commentary track for on this Friday, so make sure you stick around on our social medias to find out which film that will be, and stay tuned next week for that live commentary episode. So uh, look for that next week same geek time same geek channel but for now for geek explain this is eric zana thank you very much for listening stay safe stay spooky and we will see you next time Something strange Come with us and you will see This our town of Halloween This is Halloween This is Halloween Pumpkin scream in the dead of night This is Halloween Everybody make a scene Trick or treat Tell the neighbors on a diaphragm It's our town Everybody's Ground sharp and eyes glowing red. I am the one hiding under your stairs. Fingers like snakes and spiders in my hair. This is Halloween, this is Halloween, 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 Halloween. In this town, we call home. Everyone hail to the pumpkin song. In this town, don't we love it now? Everybody's waiting for the next surprise. Everyone hail to the
Pumpkin song. Halloween. 